you know, the other side we were also getting a lot of calls is, is about ARK investments, right? And so why don't we have ARK in our portfolio? It's going up. And well, it's because it's fundamentally flawed and it's going to crash. Yeah, but it's going up. And, you know, we took a lot of heat for that. Now we have no pressure at all. There's nobody calling us saying, hey, I want to get into ARK or I want to get into Bitcoin. Those calls are not happening right now. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you back for another week of Making Sense of the Markets with our weekly market recap with Lance Roberts. Hey, Lance, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. It's Friday. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> it is Friday. It's been another, you know, yeah. nail biter of a week, but lots to talk about here. Um, but let's let's start with the action today. Right. We bounced. Finally yeah. got a big bounce here. Finally. So it's is this the bottom? Is the bottom in? Is this the start of the big relief rally or what? Um, probably not, um, simply because you said that. And, the, <laughs> and, and, and well, not, not, not really, but here's the thing. Everybody's looking for this reflexive rally, right? So, you know, we've seen this before, you know, last week, um, you know, when the Fed announced, you know, they're going to hike, you know, they hiked rates 50 basis points. You know, we had this huge 3% rally in the market. The next day, it all goes away. And that's really been kind of a hallmark of this market over the last, you know, really three, four weeks is that every time you get some type of, of rally action, everybody's going like, oh, boy, this is it. You know, here's this reflexive rally we're all looking for. Um, the next day, we just kind of give it all up and go back down and, and, and plumb new lows. Now, the, the good news is, is we're holding support right here at, at you know, important levels on the S&P. So that's that's some good news. Um, the other kind of big news was is that bonds also bounced this week, uh, early this week, big move in bonds as markets were really selling off. We saw finally bonds doing their job of hedging portfolio risk. So that was encouraging also because we're seeing money flows coming into those areas. And, and, and like I said, and then today we saw a lot of money trying to come back in after yesterday's kind of bloodletting. So, you know, a couple of things here. One, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, had a lot of hallmarkings of capitulation, uh, a lot of panic selling. It seemed like we saw, you know, kind of a, a lot of stocks just really getting hammered, really saw it in, you know, the, the Apples, the Microsofts as well, you know, big down days for those stocks. And we saw, you know, outflows of ETFs, right? So all these passive indexers are now becoming not so passive and they're starting to actually sell their ETFs, which is why, you're seeing the sell-off in the generals now, right? Uh, the Apples, Microsofts, et cetera, because that's what's been supporting the market is those passive index ETFs that are all weighted with those stocks. So when the, the passive indexers became active, which was only a function of time, you know, now you see it hitting the, the top end of the index. So, you know, but, but again, I want to be real cautious here. So let, let's talk about a couple of technical things very quickly about the markets, and then we can kind of move on from there. One is that on a daily and weekly basis, the market is, was, and this is as of Thursday now, not so Friday reverses a little bit, but on Thursday, as of Thursday, the market was trading three standard deviations and actually a little bit more on both the 50-day moving average and the 50-week moving average. So on a weekly basis and on a daily basis, markets were trading well into three standard deviation territory. And, and this is where everybody just kind of glazed over at that point. Um, all standard deviation is, 
And just, and look, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get emails from people going, no, it's, it's 99.99. Look, okay. Just rough ballparks here. Standard deviations are simply the measure of price movement. So when, when we get to certain levels of deviation from the 50 day or from the 50 week moving average, what that tells us is if we look at the normal distribution of drawdowns and advances, that roughly between 95 and 99% of all the potential price movement is built into that particular move of the market. So, and now again, everybody's like, I still don't understand what the hell you're saying. Make it really Go easy. back to your rubber band analogy. Thank you very much. That's exactly right. So, you know, I stretched rubber band this far and it's, you know, when I stretched the rubber band and it's starting to get a little bit hard to pull, that's two standard deviations. And then I pull it just to the point where it's about to break. Now we're talking three standard deviations, and that's where we are right now. It's just we've stretched the market so far that historically speaking, technically speaking, we were at levels that we only saw at the bottom in March of 2020, the bottoms in 2018, the bottoms in 2015, 2016. Doesn't happen very often. But when it does, it's generally conducive to a reflexive rally in the markets. And it's also kind of part and function of that capitulation selling in the market. So, you know, again, I, I wouldn't surprise me at all that we get a nice reflexive rally, maybe back to the 20 day moving average is a good initial target. The 50 day would certainly be well within the ballpark of reality to get a, a rally back to there, but I would be selling that rally. And this is something that, that we're, we're doing what's not, we, we've started a new process in our portfolio management that's called a running rebalance. <laughs> so, and what this, what this is, is, is that we know there's positions of the portfolio that we need to sell. They've broken stops. They, they are, you know, not acting like they should, but they were so oversold that it would, we would be remiss to sell them when they're trading at such deep, extreme oversold conditions. So normally what we do in a rebalance is we sell stuff that we don't like and we buy stuff that we like. And, and this time what we're doing is we're holding the stuff that we don't like for this reflexive rally. And we're already starting to buy some of the stuff that we do like. So we have been nibbling a little bit on United Healthcare. We nibbled a little bit on Abbott Labs today. Good solid fundamental balance sheet. Stock's been under a lot of pressure over baby food lately. That's going to pass. Um, I love buying these, these healthcare companies when some piece of bad news happens. Everybody freaks out, they sell them off, and then it becomes yesterday's news and stocks rally again. Uh, demographics don't change, and it, the trend of healthcare isn't going to change anytime soon. Um, also nibbled a little bit on Verizon lately. Again, 5.5% dividend yield can, can kind of hold it here. It's not, gonna, it's not a barn burner, but fundamental balance sheet looks strong. And, and so we've kind of been nibbling on those and we're holding these other stocks. There's three or four that we want to liquidate, but on this rally, we'll liquidate those. So we're calling this a running rebalance. Now, this is our new thing, uh, which is to buy in advance. And know we, we know we have a sell coming up here uh, in, in the next month or so. So, you know, we'll see where this rally goes to. It's, it's going to be important. And I can't stress this enough. Be careful jumping in here. Um, we need more than one day of a rally. And that's the one thing that's been very, very hard to come by as of late is a, is a rally that actually sticks. It has been encouraging the last couple of days. We have seen money coming into the market very late in the day. 
Um, even in days where the markets were performing poorly, like yesterday, markets rallied back at the end of the day and you know almost closed even on the S&P. And that's, that's encouraging because that late day kind of market action is more institutions than it is retail. So that is giving us a little bit of confidence here, you know, that we might get a, a follow through rally. But again, whatever we get, I just, you know, I don't think it's going to be much. And I think it's definitely something that you sell into and rebalance risk. Great explanation. All right. So um, uh, I, I want to talk a little bit more about your trades, but but real quick, just before we leave the, the bounce theme, uh, I, I want to put up a, a visual here. This is from Sven Henrik of Northman Trader. Showing this, oh the, the bounce from today. Yeah, Sven's great. Showing the bounce from today, um, you know, with the big picture of Powell's face laughing. And at the bottom, basically, it says, you know, what are the odds that this happens on the day that Powell gets confirmed, right? Right. <laughs> so, you know, engineered to make Powell's reconfirmation look good. Who knows? Um, but I want to contrast that, too, with when you look at when the markets really started to begin selling off at the beginning of the year, that was pretty much right when all of the the the, the Fed top execs who were getting in trouble liquidated yeah. their positions, quote unquote, in the public good, right? Getting right, them right. out right at the top of the market before all this carnage started. So look, it's it's correlation, not necessarily causation, but it does raise an eyebrow or two, right? Well, um, I think that's a valid ahead. point. You know, just real quick though, you know, I think maybe the market liked Powell getting reconfirmed um, because at least you know what you get. With right, Powell. it doesn't like uncertainty. It knows yeah. who Powell is. So. And, and everybody below him is worse. So, you know, <laughs> you know, do you really want Lel Brainerd? I mean, come on. I mean, you know, the, the, every choice below Powell is just is just a worse choice than Powell. So I, I think the markets like what they got. All right. Well, so you, you had been talking about, you know, positioning, waiting for this yeah. this rally. Um, you've been very consistent in saying you're going to use it as a rally to sell into. You just did a great job of reaffirming why. Um, so, uh, uh you know, I guess we're sort of in a wait and see mode, right? So yeah. what what what's going to happen next week to give you confidence one way or the other, whether this is indeed, you know, a rally that's going to have some legs or whether it's it's a fake out? Well, you know, well, if obviously on, I mean, it's really comes down to Monday, Tuesday, right? So on Monday, we need to have a follow through uh, of some sort. And I don't even care if on Monday, if we, if we open up out of the gate or even open down a little bit out of the gate, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if we open up out of the gate, sell off midday and then rally back at the end of the day, I'm actually okay with that because right now there's so many people that are trapped um, in this recent kind of sell off. They're looking for any reason to sell, right? There's like every time it bounces, I'm, oh, good, finally I'm up a little bit, boom, I'm going to sell. We got to kind of get through that a little bit. So if markets can kind of just hold their own Monday, Tuesday, and then potentially stretch a rally a little bit, you know, towards that 20 day moving average on say Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you know, I think we're pretty, I think we've got a pretty good confirmation that we're going to get, you know, kind of that, that rally, you know, there's a lot of shorts sitting on this market. Um, you know, I, you know, today's rally was very good, very, a lot of short covering. You saw stocks rallying today that have been just really beaten up. NVIDIA, AMD, others have had, had you know, they were up like 8% today or more. Um, that's short covering. You're seeing that. But there's still a lot of short covering out there. So, you know, if you get another day of a decent rally, I think you're going to trigger a lot of those shorts to start covering. And that's going to, that's going to be that fuel that gives you right. kind of that March type rally. Right. It's going to give sells. us more days like today where the shorts yeah. get stuck and then they get squeezed and all of a sudden, the, you know, the S&P is up 
two and a half percent. Exactly. And it's going to happen quick. Uh, you know, and that's also the same thing with bonds. You know, we've been talking about bonds and, you know, they've rallied. They, they rallied fairly well early in the week, but not enough to trigger the short covering. There's a lot of short sitting in the bond market as well. So, again, you know, it, it was nice to see the non-correlation kind of coming back into stocks and bonds this week. Stocks rallied today. Bonds were down. That's that's actually a good thing. We actually kind of want to see that. That's a healthy environment for stocks and bonds. It's, it's not as healthy when they're correlated. So there's some indications that money's kind of starting to move back in a more normal manner. Uh, also going to next week is good because uh, we're finally past the Fed. For the most part, you know, all the Fed speakers will shut up now for at least a week. And most of the earnings are now behind us. So we're not going to get this constant kind of deluge of, of corporate earnings and announcing misses and, you know, kind of shaking up markets, et cetera. So you know, one thing that could help the bounce is just a lack of news. It's not like we're actually need to have good news. Just a lack of news might allow money flow to come back into the market a bit. Yeah. You know, when the markets get this oversold, I think I was saying this the other day on the program, um, they, they get they're just looking for a trigger. Right. So yeah. good news can be a big trigger, but actually just not quite as bad news can be a trigger right? <laughs> in this environment. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Um, so you did mention bonds. Let's just. Yeah. Talk and get it out of the way. TLT, that's a yep. position we've been talking about a lot in this program. Um, it, it did continue to go down earlier this week. I think it got as low as like 114, 113. Mm -hmm. It bounced or yeah, bounced yesterday back as high as 118. I think right now it's in the high 116s or something like that, yep. if I'm doing this right from memory. Yep. Um, so you kind of said, you know, hey, look, uh, good to see the bounce. It hasn't followed through yet enough to trigger the shorts. Um, I believe you believe that there's if we do get a rally, you, you, you think that TLT is going to go a lot higher, you know, yeah. in the short term. So we, we may actually see stocks and at least TLT uh, rising together here if there's sort of a short squeeze rally. Is that true? Yeah, that, that, I think that's very reasonable. And, you know, one thing that really kind of helped boost bonds this week, and I know it's on your list to get to the, today, is that we may have seen the peak of inflation. And so, you know, I think that's also one thing that was that's filtering into the bond side. If we if we keep getting some data over the next month or so that is confirming that we may have seen that peak in inflation, we may see bonds start to rally some more as interest rates start to readjust for a lower inflation, less less aggressive Fed hiking exactly. structure in the markets. Great. Yeah. And it's funny uh, we're going through sub bullets on bullet two, but bullet three is CPI. So we'll get to that. In just I, I, that's why I said, I know it's on your list. I knew you knew. It was exactly. Um, all right. So two quick things. So one, just the US dollar um, still remains really strong right now. We talked a little bit of the impact that that's having on a number of different asset classes and other currencies around the world. Um, just before, I just want to make a nod to it to see if there's anything there we need to talk about. I mean, if it continues to go higher from here, what kind of impact do you think that's going to have on the general investing environment? Would that, that put downward pressure again on, on assets here or what? No, you, a stronger U.S. dollar, it can, well, it depends on what asset class you're talking about. So the dollar has you know, impacts on various asset classes. Um, you know, gold has been under a tremendous amount of pressure here as the dollar has been rallying. And again, you know, this is also kind of back to that you know, correlation story that you know, we're, we're starting to see you know, kind of correlations go back to norms. And for a while there, you know, the dollar was rallying and oil prices were skyrocketing and, you know, and, and, and gold prices were going up and these type of things. And normally when you have a stronger, again, we go back to the basis of the dollar, 
we trade commodities in dollars everywhere in the world. So because of that, if the dollar gets stronger, then that makes it more expensive for you know, foreign buyers to buy commodities because they all trade in, regardless of what currency you're in. If you buy gold or oil or wheat or cotton or whatever, you're paying for it in US dollars. So they have to do the conversion to make the purchases. So if the dollar is really strong, that makes it more expensive on them to buy stuff, which tampers demand and you know, slows, slows the economy, lowers the prices of commodities. Um, that hasn't been the case as of late, but, you know, I think it's now starting to kind of, you know, I, I think if the markets have gotten through whatever kind of period that we've been in for the last four months, whatever you want to call it, um, and we're starting to return to more normal correlations, that might see, and again, this is going back to bullet point number three, we'll get to in a second. Um, this all may be starting to kind of dovetail into that idea of, of weaker inflation prints, commodity prices starting to come back down into more normal levels. Um, you know, and so we, and, and, and like I said, gold has been under a lot of pressure here over the last couple of weeks in particular, despite the fact, I mean, you know, gold's supposed to be the hedge for inflation. We're printing 8% inflation and gold's been getting monkey hammered for the last couple of weeks. So that really doesn't line up to what you would kind of expect to be happening but it has a lot to do with the dollar. All right, great. Um, all right, well, look, let's let's move on to uh, something that's been declining a lot versus the dollar recently, which has exactly. been cryptocurrencies, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, not necessarily your or my deep area of expertise, um, but I figure we should just talk about it for a yeah. couple of reasons. One, uh, it, it really has been a bloodbath in that space uh, of late. I mean, the whole year, uh, I think things. I think that bounced today too. But but as of yesterday, Bitcoin was down about forty percent for the year, and a lot of cryptos were down a lot more than that. Um, we had the the real scare in the industry this week with the stablecoin uh, Terra uh, and its sort of sister token Luna. Um, you know, Terra was a stablecoin. It broke the buck. Um, I don't know what it's worth today, but it's a lot worth much closer to zero than it is to a dollar right now. And that's just not supposed to happen with these stable coins. They're supposed to be stable and basically um, be a peg of one coin for one US dollar. Uh, and so this was sort of one of those things that really like couldn't have happened. I mean, I, I, I think people knew there was a potential risk of something like this ha happening, but it was supposed to be a real tail one. Uh, well, this just imploded. And it's, I think, to a certain extent, you know, injuring confidence in the space in general. So what, what do you, you know, the, the, the crypto community, I think, would say, ah, you know what, you know, the crypto space goes through an 80% drawdown every couple of years. It's just part of the game. Um, do you think we're more like, okay, yeah, it's just sort of like that and things will get back to normal? Or do you think what we're seeing right now is really sort of beginning to fundamentally shake people's confidence in this space that we haven't seen yet? Well, so I, I think, you know, you kind of missed the headline a, a little bit on <laughs> okay. what happened. Um, you know, and, and I don't mean that I'm not being derogatory, but there was something else that, that was more, I think, more important, which was said that undermines. Oh, look, OK, and before I say that, let me say this. What you said earlier, cryptocurrency is not my thing. I understand it on the periphery. I am sure there's so much more to cryptocurrency that I don't know and other people do. But as an investor and as a human being and as a person, um, you know, there's some things that, you know, that are, that are happening potentially that should make you at least stand back and question the efficacy of cryptocurrency. And here's what I mean by that. 
So the whole premise of cryptocurrency kind of in the big, you know, this was kind of the theme for a long time was like, this is going to replace fiat currencies, right? So we've got cryptocurrency and fiat currencies are bad. And, you know, all the fiat currencies in the world are going to go away, but cryptocurrency is going to survive. Well, there's, there's, you know, there's a question about that now because of what happened with Luna um, in particular, because now we're breaking the value of the buck. So, you know, with these stable coins, they, they trade under two manners. One, it's either an algorithm or it's cash based. And, you know, when you start breaking the buck, people, uh, most people that are investing in cryptos weren't around in the markets back in 2008, most likely. But Adam, you remember, we broke the buck on a, on a major money market fund, which was unheard of at that point in time. And what that means is, is that you've got money in the money market and it's valued. And, and look, that money market fund is invested in, in short term, short duration bills, et cetera. In reality, underneath the surface, that money market fund is going up and down in value every day based on what's happening with interest rates. But because of the way the money market fund is structured, it prices at a dollar every single day. So when you look at your money market cash balance in your portfolio, it's always a dollar. No matter what right, it is, right. it's always a dollar. It's value proposition to the, the investors. This is money good. You know, yeah. like you, you can count on this just like you can cash under your mattress. It, it's, it's almost equivalent in safety. That's the way it's marketed. Right. And, and that's an important point, which I was just about to make the statement of, is that most of those money market funds are guaranteed in some form. So, for instance, if you have a money market fund at the bank, you're guaranteed up to $250,000 for an individual or $500,000, depending on whatever the FDIC insurance is for that bank. Um, mo every brokerage firm is insured up to a certain amount under what they call SIPC, which is the FDIC equivalent. And then on top of that, because brokerage firms want to have all your money, right? So they want the investors with 100 million, 200 billion. They want the Elon Musk with a billion dollars sitting in their bank. They buy additional insurance coverage to cover hundreds of millions of dollars in, uh, of coverage. So, if, so if, the, if, the, if Fidelio is bankrupt or whatever, your money good. Now, why is that important? Because the reason it's important is that in the stable coin era issue, there is no insurance. And what most people, I think a lot of people missed this week was the announcement that Coinbase had in their fourth quarter earnings report, which said that if Coinbase goes bankrupt, now Coinbase you know, has custody of like $250 billion worth. And this is their statement, by the way. And I thought this was most interesting. The whole premise of cryptocurrency is that it's not a fiat currency, right? Coinbase's statement says, we currently custody in excess of $250 billion worth of fiat currencies and other digital assets. But that wasn't the most important line. The most important line was, is that if Coinbase goes bankrupt, your assets become assets of the company in exchange for, for bankruptcy proceedings. So in other words, the creditors then get the first claim on your assets to settle obligations of Coinbase during a bankruptcy filing, which means you theoretically get zero back in that environment. And this is why you saw a big run on the bank, <laughs> you know, literally in, in a lot of cryptocurrency over the last couple of days, because people just realized the fact um, of that risk. And here's the important thing about the difference between the US dollar. You may hate the US dollar. You may think the US dollar is crap and it's all going to zero and we're, we're a fiat currency. 
Everybody's a fiat currency. We've talked about this before. Every currency in the world, there's no currency backed by anything. It's all on the full faith in government, uh, full faith and, and credit of the government. But your dollar is always worth a dollar and nobody can take it from you in the event of a bankruptcy. Just they can't come to your house and say, well, ExxonMobil bankrupt and I'm going to take your dollars. That's not the way that happens. Um, if it happens to a bank, you're insured up to those insurance levels that nobody can take your money. So, you know, there are there are differences between what's happening in the crypto world that I think is, and to your point, and this is a long way to say, I think this is going to create a fundamental questioning of the cryptocurrency space. In other words, we may need to, I think that we may see people step back and kind of reevaluate you know exactly what the outlook for cryptocurrencies are because the other side of this is that they're now trading like a speculative asset the correlation between bitcoin and the nasdaq is you know almost 100% so you know it, it went from this idea of being this you know financial freedom instrument to a speculative investment asset that people have just now realized is not backed by anything at all and not even the full faith and credit of the, of the issuing entity all right. I, I'm sure that last statement's going to get a lot of comments in the comment section from people I'm who sure. know crypto is better than you and I. Um, uh, exactly. I'm sure yeah. a lot, I'm sure there's gonna be a lot of disagreement. Like I said, from my amateur view, you know, it certainly make me rethink my my hey, look, and I have holdings in Bitcoin and Ethereum, and I'm seriously questioning what do I do next? Well, so so here, here here's why I wanted to ask this question of you it, with your imperfect knowledge of the space, because yeah. you're a you're a you're a focus group of one of professional financial advisors who have to manage capital for other people. And I don't know how much, you know, of your current portfolio you manage for clients is in cryptocurrencies. I'm going to guess very little from the right. vibe you're giving off here. Um, and sort of where I, I wanted to get to, and I'll ask this question right now, although you've, you've intimated it, which is, does what is what's happening right now making you more or less, uh, confident or interested to adopt cryptocurrency as a larger percentage of your portfolio? Well, yeah, so from an investment standpoint, right? So, so again, let's go back to my amateur view of, of cryptocurrencies. Um, first of all, I think blockchain has a huge amount of potential. Yep. And what I find interesting is, is when, when, and this is going to be a very long-winded answer to answer your question, by the way. <laughs> All right. You know, we didn't crypto, mean it for this to be the crypto uh, market yeah. update, but anyway, and, 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 and we'll we'll keep it short. But but when, you know, when crypto first came out, you know, it was all about the blockchain, and we're going to be doing everything on blockchain, right? We're going to be buying and selling securities on blockchain, and we're going to be doing real estate transactions and banking transactions and all that. And that's been a very slow adoption. I mean, there's only a, probably a handful of you know activities that are happening on the blockchain itself. And, and that's going to grow over time. So I think there's a huge potential benefit for what you know comes out of the blockchain environment. But as is always the case, when you introduce speculation into an environment, and, and, and again, you know, cryptocurrency as a function of the blockchain is a, is is a very interesting idea, and, and, and I think it's got a lot of long-term potential. And I am sure that by the time my kids get to be my age you know, the entire world will be operating on a digital platform of some sort. But, you know, making that transition takes a very long time and, and there's going to be things that go a long way. I think the mistake that was made, and, I, and, and you can't say it's a mistake because it's just a function of, of human beings and, and, human, and human action and human psychology, 
is we took that whole great idea of cryptocurrencies and we made it a speculative bet. And we started, you know, ramping up, you know, cryptocurrencies and then doing it on margin and doing all the things that ultimately lead to these tremendous busts that we see in assets. It doesn't matter whether it's a Bitcoin or ARK investments or whatever, you know, we're seeing everything blow up now. And that was the inevitable conclusion of all of this, right? The, the huge run up in margins, the huge speculative bets made on, on every area of the market, you know, buying stocks with no fundamentals, chasing cryptocurrencies to, to high levels, you know, the eventual reversion to the mean was, was inescapable. And we're now seeing the implications of that. And I think, and, and again, going back to what I said earlier, is what that reversion to the mean is revealing is the weaknesses in the market in the market and again you know what happened with Terra what Coinbase said in their in their statements and you know it's undermining a lot of those a lot of those theses remember remember those theses of you know low interest rates justify high valuations and that's why everybody was buying ARK stocks doesn't really work out that way in the real world right 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 <laughs> valuations matter and I think that's what's happening you know, across the cryptocurrency space. And look, it's going to work itself out and, and it's going to be fine. And we're probably going to have another huge run in cryptocurrencies. Again, I'm, you know, like I said, I own, I own Bitcoin, I own Ethereum. I'm not sure why I do, but, you know, I'm, I've got a long-term bet on this. I put a little money away. I want to see what it looks like in five years. So I just kind of shut my eyes and turn off the computer and I don't pay attention to it. Um, but in five years, we'll see how it does. It may be worth zero. It may be worth something. We'll, we'll see what happens. But I, but most investors aren't treating it like investing. They're, they're treating it like a speculative asset and they're trading it. And there's nothing wrong with that, but there's also consequences to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so folks, I promise I got a lot of more questions that aren't related to cryptocurrencies here. Um, but, yeah, oh, wait, wait, I didn't wait, but I didn't answer your question. Uh, your question was, this is sorry, very quickly. And then I'll make a real short answer. Your question was, does what happens in, in cryptocurrency now, is it going to change my view long-term about investing more or less in cryptocurrency for clients? Um, it's very hard to invest in cryptocurrency for clients currently because the custodians aren't really set up for it. Um, you know, create, you know, we have to go out and create a digital wallet for the client. Basically, they have to kind of do it on their own and we help them through it. So it, it's not, a, it's not, a, and again, this is kind of goes back to the other, other aspect of adoption it's not been really adopted yet into platforms. So, you know, once Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and other cryptos get into a more adoptable plane with custodians where advisors can very easily add it to a portfolio that shows up on the client statement and it stays under the custodian uh, controls of whatever the, whoever the custodian is, you know, then yeah, I think it'll become a much more widely adopted uh, asset class in, in that form. Um, but the other side of this is, is volatility. And again, I manage money for mostly people getting ready for retirement or at retirement. And uh, again, look, people are freaking out over bonds being down 8%. Do you imagine what a client would do if they had Bitcoin down 50% in their portfolio? <laughs> I mean, you know, they're, you know, older clients, you know, despite what they say, you know, cannot handle 50% drawdowns in asset classes. It just, it's, it's not, it, and, and again, that's what leads to lawsuits and all kinds of other stuff that, you know, no advisor wants. 
All right, thanks. Here's where I was going with that, and and I'm going to try to give you put the soundbite I wanted to get in your into your word into your mouth, and you can tell me if it's correct or not. Okay. But um, yes, there are challenges of owning this stuff in client accounts, given the issues you've talked about with sort of how it's held and what the brokerages allow and stuff like that. Right. But I got to imagine that that money managers like you have felt some pressure over the past couple of years as the cryptocurrency space exploded, and said, you know, like God, am I missing out on this massive, you know wealth generation vehicle. And I'm getting all these calls from people who are saying, hey, can Lance, can you put some of that in my portfolio? Um, my sense of what is now happening right now is making people like you saying like, you know what, you're right. Like th this, the, this, this thing isn't ready for prime time. I, I'm not feeling that bad about being in. I'm not feeling any pressure in the near term to get into this. And, and why that's material is, is I think a, a part of the crypto argument is, hey, as more institutions as, as more you know capital managers be, begin to get on the platform and start investing in that that's going to create this virtuous cycle here and so my question was sort of the spirit of like are the brakes kind of being pumped on that right now given what's yeah. going on in the markets well i give you a good example of this um in 2020 2021 yeah we were getting pressured to buy bitcoin um in 2020 2021 when it was running up we got clients so i was like hey should we own some of this bitcoin thing it's going crazy and it's like yeah, but, you know, it's, it's very difficult to do. We can't really work that into the portfolio right now. You, we'll tell you how to go do it on your own, right? Um, you know, the other side we were also getting a lot of calls is, is about ARK investments, right? And so why don't we have ARK in our portfolio? It's going up. And well, it's because it's fundamentally flawed and it's going to crash. Yeah, but it's going up. And, you know, we took a lot of heat for that. And, and not surprisingly now, you know, after Bitcoin crashed twice now, and ARC is completely crashed. You know, ARC was up, I, I've got a chart um, that I was working on for a letter next week. ARC is up 370% from the lows in 2020. And, you know, this is one of those things about percentage gains and losses. Everybody says, ah, I made 300% and I only lost 50. Um, ARC is down 77% from the peak and that wiped out all the gains going back to 2020. So up 320, down 77, and you're back to even. Um, but that's, you know, when now we have no pressure at all. There's nobody calling us saying, hey, I want to get into ARC or I want to get into Bitcoin. Those calls are not happening right now. All right. All right. Okay. Much longer detour through the crypto space yeah. than I intended here, folks, <laughs> but, but it's all interesting and, and, and useful. All right. So <laughs> bullet point number three of like 20, um, inflation, or CPI. Consumer Price Inflation uh, Index. Um, you and I had kind of stuck our necks out a bit over the past month saying that we thought that this, the reported CPI rate for April was going to come in lower than what the March uh, CPI rate was. And we got a lot of understandable pushback on that. And again, we weren't saying that means that prices are coming down in any way, shape or form. We just thought it might be a little bit lower and we actually were vindicated. Yep. So uh, CPI came out a couple of days ago at 8.3% uh, for April. That's down a little bit from the 8.5% that was there for March. Um, so first off, Lance, a little, little pat in the back, little pew, we, we got that call. Right? <laughs> yeah, that was um, lucky. <laughs> Yeah. Now again, a month month over month, uh, CPI growth actually increased. Um, so we're not saying that inflation still isn't a big problem. It is. Right. Um, but, but but there's a, there's a real important point there. Don't jump off yeah. that one just yet. So CPI month over month last. Uh, so so we just reported April, right? So this is May. So we just reported April. Yeah. Um, March's CPI was up 1.2 percent for the month. So. The even though the CPI number came in hotter than expected, 
this, this, this for April, it was down sharply from that 1.2% increase that we saw back in March. And that's to your point, this is why the year over year comparison came down. This is why the month over month comparison came down. And interestingly, inside of the CPI, there's kind of eight big sectors that make up the CPI index. Um, five of those sectors were actually lower this for April than they were in May. And it was just, it was basically three sectors that were kind of holding inflation up at this point. PPI also exactly the same thing, month over month declines, year over year declines. Um, and I think that, you know, and, and if we see, even if inflation comes in at 0.3% every month from here on out, inflation is going to fall to 5.5% by the end of the year. Right, right. Okay. And you, so you're going exactly where I want to take this. So bear with me on bullet points four through eight here, because they tell a little bit of a story. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Um, so we are beginning to see the initial signs of prices beginning to cool in certain markets, right? Mm -hmm. So again, I'm not saying that hot inflation still isn't a real problem, but the rate of change is now become, beginning to become observably less as we go on here. And, and I mean, the question I'm going to get to eventually is, is, you know, is this actually the trend we should be worried about? I know we're all super worried, understandably, about hot inflation right now, but really disinflation and then maybe even at some point deflation might become yeah. the bigger concern here. So let me just run through a couple of stats. Um, so used car prices have declined for each of the past three months. All right. So we are beginning to see actual lower prices uh, happening in the auto space, which went bananas over the past year and a half, uh, mostly because of chip shortages and supply chain shortages due to uh, COVID. Um, but we are beginning to see those prices come down. Um, Mark Zandi, who is a very well-known economist, sort of mainstream economist, said, uh, I think the used vehicle price decline is the first real indication that goods price inflation is about ready to roll over. And that caught my attention because Zandi, you know, he's a mainstream guy. He's mm -hmm. not really uh, up for putting his neck out there very much. Um, but he's basically saying this may be the thing that, that causes uh, a goods price inflation to roll over. It might, might be, sorry, the, the harbinger for the rest of the, the goods. Uh, and then Redfin, uh, housing from Redfin came out. Uh, the number of home sellers who dropped their asking price shot up to a six-month high of 15% during a four-week period ending on May 1 up 9% from a year earlier. That's the largest annual gain on record in Redfin's weekly housing data. So we actually are now beginning to see some housing prices mm -hmm. come down, right? That's a pretty material jump from, from a year ago. So uh, again, early days, but we're beginning to see multiple signs now around the board that say, hey, prices are on the move and they're on the move downward in some of these mm -hmm. big important categories. So I want to move on in a second to, to cooling in the jobs market, but real quick, anything to say about just sort of general price trajectory changes that we're seeing here? Well, no, you know, as we said before, you know, the cure for high prices is high prices. You get demand mm -hmm. destruction and lifting interest rates, uh, even at the Fed rate or when the 10-year treasury rate goes to 3%, you're going to see demand destruction in the housing market, particularly when people are so, look, in the housing market, people buy payments, they don't buy houses. So when interest rates go up, the payment goes up and go two things. One, either I can't afford it or psychologically they say, you know what, I'm just, I wasn't in that big of a hurry to buy that over, overpriced house to start with. So I'll just wait till rates come back down again because I'm okay where I am. And so there's a psychological factor that, that occurs as well. So no, we're seeing housing prices come down. What we need to see is that now translate into what's called homeowners equivalent rent. And that is the measure of housing that is inside the CPI calculation. And it runs a bit of a lag, 
So I think over the next month or two, we may start to see that price, that homeowner's equivalent rate come down. That makes up about uh, 27% of CPI calculation, if I'm not mistaken. It's a big chunk. So we may see that start to, to, to weigh on. And if that number starts to come down, that's going to have a fairly big suppression rate on the CPI calculation. Great. And, you know, so agree with everything you said, you know, you mentioned demand destruction. That is the Fed's mandate right now, right? right? That's what Powell came out and said, I am totally focused on this demand side. I'm going to bring that damn demand down, right? I'm uh, going to kill the consumer. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that, that's what he's doing, right? I mean, he's yeah. literally trying to stop people from spending as much. Um, so, uh, you know, housing takes longer for this stuff to materialize in for a bunch of understandable reasons. Um, so we'll be watching that closely and updating folks here. Um, another big thing that's in the CPI right now that's propping it up is, uh, you know, energy, specifically gas, gasoline prices mm -hmm. like diesel is shooting the moon right now, right? Um, if that begins to come down as well, along with this other stuff, then that could really start moving the official numbers yeah. down. Yeah. All right. So back to demand destruction. Uh, next category here is jobs. Um, that's really what Powell focused on the most in his press conference last week. He kept talking about how historically, you know, strong the jobs market was, and we had this two to one ratio of openings to, to applicants and all this stuff. He basically just said, job market, I'm putting a great big bullseye on you and I'm coming for you, right? right. So let me just read this real quick. Uh, Chair Powell keeps mentioning the relationship between the high level of job openings and wage price inflation. Nicholas Colas, co-founder of Datatrek, wrote in a newsletter on Tuesday. That's another well-known kind of mainstream economist. He's not talking to investors. He's talking to corporate America. And his goal is to have companies essentially institute a hiring freeze and end the cycle of paying up for new hires. Right. So short, shorthand version of that is Jerome Powell is declaring war on the jobs market, right? And um, I understand, you know, we've got that huge uh, gap that we thought we had just mentioned there, but I wanna put up this chart here, which is a chart I found of uh, layoffs in the tech industry. And you'll see here that, you know, they were large back in 2020, right? Um, but then they cratered uh, throughout 2021 and they're now picking back up and we're beginning to hit levels that haven't been seen since back when the economy was shut down during the pandemic. And if you look at the last data set there, uh, those are May numbers. Um, those are almost as high as June. And uh, it's only that's only the first 11 days of May's worth right. of data in that chart here, right? So we're already beginning to see the canary in the coal mine here, right? Where, you know, these, these tech companies, a lot of these tech companies are pretty large companies here. I mean, it's not just tiny little startups. There's a bunch of tech names in there that you recognize. Um, they're already beginning to lay off workers yeah. here, right? So just two more things and I'll let you jump in on here. Okay. Uh, headline from Fortune, um, it could be time to stop job hopping and buckle up at a company where you can survive a major downturn, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that, that narrative is already kind of beginning to creep in here that like, hey, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't just tell our do, jo, uh, boss to take this job and shove it. You know, maybe we got to find a safe place to hunker down, you know, this, this both jobs recession and maybe full-blown economic recession that's coming. So anyways, Lance, what do you think of this? Well, a couple of things. I thought Uber made a very interesting statement um, when they were discussing the earnings. They said, we're going to start treating hiring as a privilege. Um, so that's to your point, right? Companies are starting to realize that, you know, having to pay up for labor, it's costly. Um, it's not just the job, right? So, you know, if, Adam, if I hire you to come work for me, it's not just, and this is one of the big mistakes that people make when talking about $15 an hour minimum wage. Well, what does it matter if you pay a guy $15 an hour, right? It's just 15 bucks an hour. 
it's not just $15 an hour. It's also employee taxes, social security taxes. It's also, you know, having to provide them a space to work and a uniform if they need one and, and you know, insurance benefits and 401k matches and all the other stuff that goes on. So, you know, hiring somebody is not inconsequential at any level um, because there's about another 20 to 30% that sits on top of just that salary you're paying them and for a corporation that goes right to the bottom line. And the other problem, of course, is that, you know, when you hire an employee, it's like getting married, right? I mean, you're kind of stuck with them. And, you know, I don't want to, and this is the problem with job hopping, is it, I spend money training you to do a job. So I train you to do a job, you're doing a good job, and that's, then you hop and I've got to go spend all that money all over again trying to train, train somebody else. So, you know, it gets to the point that that, that companies start reevaluating their need for employees and they start looking for other options like automation or restructuring the position, whatever it is. And so one thing will, and again, I find the numbers very interesting because, you know, we, uh, yes, we have job openings. At, uh, according to Joel's numbers, we have twice as many job openings. We have employees. Okay. You know, I question those Joel's numbers because um, I do too. So. <laughs> yeah. Because a, we haven't even recovered the jobs that we that we laid we laid all these people off during the shutdown, right? We haven't even hired all those people back yet. So, if we haven't hired all those people that have jobs back, then how can you have twice as many job openings as you have jobs, right? It, it doesn't make sense because if I if I had you know if Adam you were working for me before the pandemic and I shut down and I open back up and I'm back to full capacity and I can't find anybody, why? Where did you go? Right. If we're not back to full employment to where we were pre-pandemic and have hired all those people back, where's everybody else? The other side of this is, is that you have to also account for population growth. We're adding about 200,000 people, you know, consistently, you know, every month through, I mean, through every year, you know, just kind of, you know, adding to the population through birth, immigration, all these type of things. You've heard about the Southern border. Those people have to work. Right. Uh, so, on top of just getting jobs back to where we were pre-pandemic, we've now got to add all the people we've added to the population since the pandemic. And yet we somehow still have this gap in jobs and employment, but we have all these job openings. So, you know, I, I question the methodology behind the job opening calculation. I think there's a lot of double counting because, you know, the, the same employer will post jobs on Indeed and, and this site and that site and the other site. And, and if I have a, a, a particular company where maybe I've got a lot of turnover, maybe I'm a restaurant or something where I have a lot of turnover, I may just have a consistent post on Indeed and, the, and, and these other websites that are always there for you know restaurants, waiters, hostesses, whatever. And I've got them on multiple websites. Well, if they're counting all those, and it doesn't mean I even have a job available, but I'm pretty sure as a restaurant owner that my wait my waiter or waitress is going to quit and go go to some other restaurant any day now. So I just kind of keep taking an application. So when I need one, I've got one there. Um, so I think it, I think there's potential. And again, I don't have any anecdotal evidence of this, right? I'm just trying to match up reality with what these numbers say. And there's just something a little bit wrong with the current number of job openings versus what we see really happening in the employment front. Yeah, yeah, no, agreed. Okay, um, so just so the point I'm trying to sort of put a bow on here is just um, we have uh, we we have signs of prices cooling, right? Which is a sign that economic demand is is coming down. Um, when economic demand starts shrinking beyond a certain amount. 
uh, companies have to start retracing, right? You know, and, and now we're seeing the early signs that companies are cooling off their hiring, right? And that very well could turn to job freezes. And if we get into a recession, that could turn into layoffs, right? We're already seeing some of those in the tech industry, like I said. So again, I'm kind of building my case here for the, uh, for the jury. Um, so now I, I just want to go talk about uh, steps the government's taking right now that, that very well just may end up making the entire situation worse, right? So, um, uh, you know, we all remember the story of King Canute, right, who went out and had the tide whipped because uh, he was unhappy with it, you know, and obviously it's a government, you know, initiative, but it, it, it has no, you know, effect, right? right. <laughs> um, so we've got Powell out there, you know, saying, look, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, you know, control the situation, bring inflation down, and he can kill the demand side, he can't do anything about the supply side, right? Yeah. So there very well may be elements of, of key commodity price inflation that persist for a lot longer than he'd like, just because he, no matter how much money the Fed prints, it's not going to imagine, it's not going to print up another barrel of oil, right? It's not going to print up any more, uh, you know, wheat or fertilizer or whatever, right? So um, uh, the danger that, that could happen there is that, you know, he's, going, you know, bananas uh, trying to fight uh, the, the inflation on the demand side um, and, and maybe very successful eventually in, in sending us into maybe a recession, right? Mm -hmm. But it could be a very stagflationary one if we have, you know, persisting high prices for a lot of core inputs, right? Which is kind of the worst of, of, of both worlds for regular people. Right, um, you're losing your jobs, you're losing your your earning potential, um, but cost of living stays high, which just sucks. Right. Um, now we also have Congress this week; uh, they just uh, announced a bill where they want to start implementing price controls. Um, specifically, this one is around excessive gasoline prices, right? And this is it's sort of classic playbook. You see when inflation starts getting out of government's hands, and it it resorts to measures like this, which history shows just never work. Are, are you familiar with this bill that's, yeah. that's put out there? Yeah. And, and it's, it's crazy town. I mean, this is, you know, so first of all, let me ask you a question, Adam, who sets the, so when you go down to your corner gas station, who sets the price of gas at that gas station? I'm guessing the gas station does at the end of the day, right? I mean, they're, they're right. sort of independently owned, right? Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and the guy that owns that gas station is the, is your next door neighbor. And, you know, that's how he, that's his business. And that's how he's making money. So yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it's not Chevron. It's Jimmy yeah. Sixpack who owns the, the Chevron station in your town. Right. Exactly right. And he's competing with. You no. Know, so let's say it's the, he's got the Shell station. So he's competing with the Exxon Mobil station across the street. He's owned by another guy that lives in your neighborhood. And, you know, every day they're adjusting their prices up or down based on supply and demand and kind of what's going on with oil prices, their input costs as well. Their input costs do go up and down relative to oil prices. But that's where the, the price is getting set. So, so the reason I say that is this. So let's institute a price control and let's just cap everything at three bucks, right? You can't charge more than three bucks a gallon anywhere in the country for gas. California... Adam, you live out in California. What's the gas tax in California on a gallon of gas? God, I, I don't know, but it's tremendous. <laughs> it's like 80 cents a gallon. Yeah. It's, 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 I, I'm, uh, somebody may, may argue with me on that, but it's a lot. It, it's, it's, it's a whole lot. Yeah. Um, in Texas, it's enough to get us to six bucks a gallon where I live. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So, and in Texas, I think it's 27 or 30 cents a gallon, whatever it is. But that's a gas tax. So, so, what, so if we cap gas prices at a certain price, 
that means that the, the, the gas station owner who's buying the gasoline or, or you know getting the gasoline from his wholesale distributor, which is ultimately coming from ExxonMobil or Shell or whoever, um, he's having to pay, you know, their prices are going up. So, and their costs are going up. And we talked about this a few weeks ago with ExxonMobil. Everybody's talking about, you know, ExxonMobil is making massive profits on this. Actually, their profit margin is shrunk with the run-up in gas and oil prices because as oil prices go up, so does the cost of everything else. We just talked about labor costs, right? Right. So labor costs are going up. The cost of, of drilling, drilling mud is going up. The cost of sand is going up. The cost of water is going up. The cost of pipes going up. So all those costs are rising at the same time that, yes, they're getting paid more per barrel, but their costs are rising as fast or faster than the increase in oil prices. And so their actual, you know, cost basis profit margin doesn't really expand that much. And, you know, this is, and so this is the fallacy we get into with price controls is this, if I start putting price controls on things, I'm going to destroy one of two things. I'm either going to destroy the supplier. And what I mean by destroy them, I don't mean put them out of business, but if I'm ExxonMobil and I can only sell my products in the U.S. for X dollars because of price controls, but I can sell them to Europe, who's in desperate need of LNG and oil and gas and other stuff at a much higher price, where do you think ExxonMobil is going to sell their product? Yeah. Um, the second thing is, is that if I stick price controls at a level that impact the retail guy at the end of the street that owns a store, he's just trying to make a living and support his family, right? He's going to, you know, he's getting to a position where, you know what, I can't afford to be in business. Yeah, he's just going to shut down and then you yeah. have no gas in your, in your, yeah. There's exactly. A third, you're going to, there's a third. so the point is, is price controls are going to impact supply and guess what you're going to get out of lack of supply? Higher inflation. Higher prices. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And, and we've done this before, by the way. Yeah, well, exactly. Every time it's been tried in history, it fails, basically. Yeah. So there's one other really important factor too, to add to your list there, which is you are going to disincent the producers from going out and exploring and investing in capital expenditure in their sector to bring more supply online because right. they're saying, hey, <clears throat> my Why? profits are basically getting, you know, yeah, uh, capped here and it's not, I don't have the incentive to do it, right? And then you're going to set yourself up for another secular shortage of that key commodity. And actually, that's one of the reasons, not just the war in Ukraine, uh, that we're seeing higher inflation or higher price in a lot of commodities right now. It's because of Decisions that were made five years ago, 10 years ago, not to invest in CapEx and instead instead distribute profits back and higher dividends or whatnot. Uh, they, they made the trade-off basically of taking money out of the companies versus putting it in the ground into investing in new supply. So you're just making an acute problem even worse. Right. So where I'm going with this, and you, you nailed the uh, hammer, the nail on the head here is, you know, a lot of what government, government seems to be doing a lot of, of what it's famous for doing, right, which is wasting money and effort fighting things they can't control and actually just exacerbating the problem that they say they're trying to fix, right? Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's one of my favorite uh, demotivational posters. I'll put it up here. Uh, it says, uh, government, if you hate the problems we create, just wait till you get a load of our solutions. And, uh, well, look, it, there's, there's one solution that, you know, that if government really wanted to fix the inflation problem, you would put a price control on wages. And you would say wages can't be more than $6 an hour for everybody. And you would immediately have such a demand destruction, you would have no inflation. But, you know, who's going to do that, right? You know, right, we always right, go right. after the we always go after the guys that are trying to provide you the supply 
but it's the demand that's ultimately, you know, is also part of this. And we're, we want to buy more stuff, right? We want more wages. We want to buy more stuff. We, so we're creating that demand and then we give everybody money to spend. That only makes it worse. Well, it, it, exactly. So, and, and I mean, we could really spin out of here, yeah. but, but what, one of the problems with a societally is when there's high inflation, it's, you know, what you hear from society, what the politicians hear from society is, is I can't make ends meet. Please give me more money. Exactly. Right? And of course, it's you're that, the problem. <laughs> it, it, it's that fiscal stimulus that is the problem, right. right? It's that free money sent to them that is driving prices higher, right? So, yeah. uh, but but you know, you can understand the family that's having trouble making ends meet. They they don't they're not thinking the big game. They're just saying, I want to feed my kids tonight, right? Yeah. But we don't and, we don't and, realize how the system. And look, works. Yeah, and let's just let, let's just conclude with this point. Look, you know, I, I jest about price controls and wages. My, I'm, I'm trying to be as ridiculous as the government, you know. You know, look, I get it, right? We want to help help the average family, right? You know, and again, if I'm a politician running for re-election in November, this is a great message, right? I'm trying to help you, you and your family sitting around the kitchen table, trying to put food on the table, trying to put gas in your car. Hey, I get it. Inflation's hurting you. You can't make ends meet. You're having to resort to credit cards. I get it. I'm here to help. Vote for me and I'm going to help you out. But these solutions aren't good solutions. They make things worse. And just like we saw with the, with the checks to households, it was to help everybody out. But free money isn't free in any form. And you either you're going to pay for these types of, of supports, either through higher prices, higher inflation, or lower standard of living. It's, that's just the ultimate consequence you pay. Totally agreed. And that was the takeaway I wanted people to take from where we are in my arc here. And now we get to the big payoff, right? Which is, okay, so where to from here, right? Um, you know, if, if you look at, at consumer sentiment, we'll put a chart up here real quickly. It's still falling, right? And they're still worried about inflation. Inflation expectations is, is still very elevated here, right? So people are really nervous, right? Um, and so understandably, I think, you know, Pal probably is going to be fairly successful in his crusade here to bring demand down. Um, so to me, that says that the trend for the rest of the year is going to be disinflation, which folks, that just means that the rate of inflation is coming down. You still have inflation. You're just having less each period than you had before. Um, so two really key questions for you, Lance, and I saw you nodding when I was talking about disinflation. Um, what likelihood do you give that we actually will enter recession uh, you know, within the next nine to 18 months or so. Um, and, and then on top of that, what are the odds that we actually at some point in the next year or two should go back into deflation? Yeah. Uh, well, if you have reset, so if you have a recession, you'll have deflation, right? Those are going to go hand in hand. I, so, I guess you will. If you've got two, at least two consecutive quarters of economic contraction, I guess technically, yes, that is deflation. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about deflation here as, Negative inflation. Uh, well, well, just just like the deflation we all really hate, right? Which right. I guess you could have in a bad, you would have in a bad recession, which is like, you know, big layoffs, uh, prolonged periods of economic stagnation. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's the periods that people remember a generation later of like that was a horrible time. Yeah. Um, so here's so there it's a it's a little bit of a conundrum to answer your question, and here's why. So we had a recession in March of 2020, technically. And even the National Bureau of Economic Research came out when they said, it's like, you know, hey, we're going to, that was a three-month recession. And because of all the stimulus and that massive rebound that we had in economic growth, we're, you know, labeling that as the recession is over. But that doesn't preclude us from re-entering a recession sooner rather than later. 
I'm, I'm, that's a synopsis of what they said. Um, but but there is a point to this is that we just went through this recession and normally it's it's uncommon to have two recessions very close back to back with the exception of what we saw back in the late 70s. So there is precedent to have a recession and, and historically speaking since really about 1990 we've been having recessions about every eight years ish. So to have one within a couple of years would certainly not be the norm of, of the cycle we've been in for the last 20 or 30 years. But again, there is a precedent for the late 70s where we saw two recessions back to back caused by high inflation and what Volcker was doing, et cetera. So to answer your question, if the Fed hikes, hikes rates more aggressively and continues their kind of stance to combat inflation over fiscal stability, then I think there's a real possibility we see a recession later this year to mid next year. And that's gonna coincide with much lower rates of inflation. So disinflation leading towards deflation uh, in that process. If they break, and so, and, and here's, the, here's the important part. If they break something economically or credit wise, like we've talked about before, then I think you could get that recession a lot quicker and you know it could come sooner. Than, than expected. But again, that, that's where you need some type of exogenous event to occur that really just shakes the psychology and confidence of the economy really very quickly. Um, that could come from overseas. They've got weaker economic growth. We have the war going on. We've got all this other stuff. There's certainly, you know, there's certainly issues um, really globally. Uh, talk about Japan and what's happening in Japan. Talk about what's happening in, in Europe. There are certainly issues that are sitting out there on the cusp that could create a, a very quick, sudden sentiment change economically, market-wise, consumer-wise. Um, and if the Fed hikes too aggressively, that's another big risk. So, you know, I know that's about as clear as mud, but here's my best guess, is that the odds of us having a recession are very high. Is it an absolute guarantee that we're going to have a recession? No. It's not an absolute guarantee. However, saying that, the Fed has never engineered a soft landing before in history. They may have initiated, it may look like an initial soft landing like we had in 1994 that caused the, the bond market crisis. And then we had the recession that followed after that. So, you know, it may be prolonged to get there. But, you know, going back, whenever the Fed is engaged in a rate hiking campaign, they typically tend to cause a recession. And the, the, it's really only a question of timing how deep and what the cause ultimately is. All right, great. And that was the key takeaway from this entire week's recap that I wanted folks to, to, to come away with, which is that, hey, the, the odds of a recession ahead are, uh, they're high enough as to not be dismissible here. And mm -hmm. I don't think you use the word probable, Lance, but I would, I, you know, I, I'm kind of thinking it's more likely than not at this point, right? Um, so the big message I just want to get out to the people watching this video, which is, is just to, you know, lean back and after you watch this video, sort of assess your personal, you know, family situation about how vulnerable are we to a recession? Yeah. You know, how, how recession proof are our jobs? What would happen if one or both of us got laid off and lost our income? Um, you know, if the markets come down as they often do with recessions or retired, you know, if we, if we had another 30% drawdown from here and it didn't recover anytime soon, could we still meet our needs? That type of stuff. Just start doing that kind of, you know, winterizing, bulletproofing, um, uh, you know, due diligence of your personal financial situation right now. And if there are, you know, if there are holes, you know, start, start focusing yeah. your attention on them because you still have time, right? Yeah. It's not like we're going to fall into recession tomorrow. At least there's no data that suggests that yet. 
Um, so I wanted to get that general warning out there. Um, and I'll, I'll let you add anything to that that you might want to, because you talk to people about this type of yeah. stuff. Well, no, I think it's, I think it's, you know, all your points are really important is that if you, if you think there's a risk of a recession coming, that also doesn't mean panic and go buy beanie weenies and, and, you know, bunker, bunker down with ammo. Right. Um, it just means, Hey, there's a, there's a real possibility that a recession is likely. And, and how do you prepare for that? I'm actually writing an article on this, um, you know, from an investment perspective, you know, but, build up some excess cash in your savings account, right? Just, just the money sitting in the bank. And the mistake everybody makes is like, well, I've got to have it invested. It's losing money to inflation. No, it's not. It's in the bank for a reason. If you lose your job, you've got cash to live on and you don't have to go liquidate investments to try to meet living obligations. So just build up some extra cash in the bank. It's a nice cushion mentally. And if something happens and we do get a downturn and you do get displaced from your job temporarily, you're not stressing out over trying to, to pay bills and, and make ends meet. Um, from an investment perspective, look for, you know, things that can help shield your portfolio from a bigger decline, right? Reduce the risk in your portfolio, look for more defensive positions um, in, in your portfolio as well. Hold some extra cash in your portfolio for opportunistic buying. There's, look, one thing, the one good thing about a recession is, is assets get a lot cheaper and set you up for a, a great buying opportunity, but you have to have the fortitude to, to buy when nobody else wants stuff. But you got to have cash available to do that. So, you know, as you as you as you think of, to Adam's point, if you're concerned about a recession, don't wait for it to smack you upside the head. Go ahead and make, you know, prepare for it. And if you're, and here's the best part about it. If you're wrong, right? If I'm wrong, if Adam's wrong, right? And we don't have a recession. And 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 two months from now, you know, economic growth is soaring and the world is back to normal and we're surging to new highs. Fantastic. Put the cash to work. Right, you lose nothing except a little bit of time, but not preparing for a recession, letting it hit you, can lead to a very large loss of capital, and then you're spending all your time trying to get back to even, and that's not making money. Right. I mean, the cost there can be time. Right. You may lose years yeah. worth of of what you had made. Right. So exactly. All right. Um, well, look, uh, I think most people viewing this know this, but obviously, Lance, you're making a great case for having a conversation with a professional, you know, financial advisor who can kind of help you think through a lot of these strategies that might be appropriate, given, again, your unique personal situation. Um, Lance and his team do that for Wealthion. So if uh, you want to have a free, no strings attached conversation with them, uh, just go to Wealthion.com and you can set one of those up. Um, all right, Lance, I'm going to wrap things up here in just a second. But first, um, I, I normally ask you what trades you've made. I think you already shared them at the beginning of this program. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, Abbott, uh, UNH, uh, Verizon. Okay, N nothing else material to add to that. No, question? no, uh, no, not, you know, that's all we're really kind of doing right now is just kind of nibbling at things that have really been beaten down during the sell off. Um, uh, again, we're kind of calling this, like I said earlier in the show, this is our running rebalance. Normally, we do the sells and the buys at the same time when we rebalance. Now we're doing the buys and we're going to wait for this, this hopefully, um, you know, we'll get a nice, nice enough reflexive rally that we can liquidate some of the positions at a little bit better prices. And, and real quick, this, this goes into stop losses real quick. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just something that, you know, a lot of people, they, you know, they get frustrated with stop losses because, you know, a stock, a stock will break a certain level and then they go, well, I broke that level, I got to sell it. And so they sell it and then the stock turns right around and runs back up. And they're looking at stop losses kind of in this isolation chamber of just a certain price. 
Um, with stop losses, you also have to match that with where you are on the overbought or oversold condition of the markets. And when markets are extremely oversold, stop loss levels are not as valuable because you're, you have a higher propensity of getting whipsawed in, in that position. So, you know, you may sell it initially and the stock go down a little bit more and you're like, aha, I did it right. And all of a sudden it takes off running back to the moon and you go, damn it, I wish I was. And then you try buying it back in. And of course you buy it at exactly the wrong time and it goes down again. So, you know, this is, this is that type of an environment where you can really get whipsawed a lot and it gets very frustrating. And this is where investors start making a lot of mistakes. You know, stop losses are very valuable. We, we use them constantly, but there are times where you've got to give stop losses a little bit of leeway, particularly when you have such extreme oversold conditions in the markets like we have now and such negative. So we have, you know, sentiment on the market is as negative as it was at any bear market in history. So, you know, there's, there's a real risk here of a fairly sharp reflexive rally, like we said, you can use that and we will, and that's the part we're going to do is that when we have this rally, then these positions that are weak, have not been performing well or have too much risk, we're going to take those out of the portfolio. All right, great. Yeah, it's a, just two things you said I particularly want to underscore. One is that, yeah, the sentiment readings are as bad as they were back in March of 2020, which is kind of crazy because you're like, hey, that's when we shut the world down. <laughs> we're not doing that now. Exactly. So to your point, people may be, you know, in the short term, freaking out more than is warranted. And, and when they kind of realize that, you know, there'll be some sort of repricing. Now, again, yeah. you're saying, hey, use that to get out. Um, oh, and, right, and, and by the way, and by the way, sentiment can reverse very quickly. You can go from very negative to very bullish in a couple of weeks. So that's not necessarily an indicator of a lasting bottom. Um, it's just an indicator that you might have a bottom. Our, our technical gauge that we run um, in our weekly newsletter is at 12 today. Um, so this weekly, it's a weekly technical gauge that combines Williams percent R, stochastics, um, Bollinger bands, a whole variety of different technical indicators, all into one into one measure. And in March of 2020, at the low, that indicator rang in at nine, and we're at 12 today. So you know we're and what's kind of average? Well, it, it runs it runs from zero to 100. Yeah. Right. So whenever you're below 10, when the only times that you've been really below 10 were March of 2020, 2018 and March of two, uh, March of 2009. So, you know, that's, you know, we've and, and again, this goes back to stretching the market. We've just done so much damage technically to the markets. You know, you just don't see things at these levels very often. Right, right. And as we've said on this program before, extremes usually don't stay extreme for very yeah, long, right? Exactly. All right, great. Um, so uh, just wrapping up here, folks, I want to share uh, who we have coming on the program next week. Uh, I'll be interviewing um, Ted Oakley uh, from Oxbow Capital. Capital. Um, I'll be uh, interviewing uh, Mike or Mish Shedlock, Mike Mish Shedlock. If you guys, uh, I know he's got a, a fairly large readership. Uh, Mike and I uh, will have Mike on next week too. And then, uh, and then as a, I, I think a, a really special guest for this program, um, we have Sally Krawcheck uh, coming on the program next month. Sally Krawcheck, uh, she ran Merrill Lynch's entire global wealth management division. Uh, she is known as the most powerful, influential woman on Wall Street. Uh, she now is CEO of a company uh, called Elvest, uh, which focuses on helping women uh, invest and build wealth. 
Um, but she is, uh, she's going to be a wonderful interview um, and definitely, I think, adds a little bit of extra gravitas to this program. So I'm very excited uh, that she, she said yes and that we're going to be interviewing her next week. Um, all right. Well, uh, wrapping it up here, Lance, um, another great weekend and re- weekly update. We, again, completely blew through our goal of keeping <laughs> it to an hour. Uh, hopefully folks enjoyed the extra content and the um, uh, PhD level dissertation that Lance gave on cryptocurrencies. Yeah, no, uh, no. <laughs> Uh, all right. Kindergarten, anyways, Lance, kindergarten. Kindergarten. Uh, it's, it's, it's always great, my friend. Uh, and it's funny. I, 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 I've got a lot more bullet points we could go through if we had an extra two or three hours, but we'll just have to jump into that next week. Uh, right. Next week will be a very critical uh, week for us to monitor here. Uh, obviously, are we going to get that balance that we were talking about or, or not? Or is this a right. fake out? Um, whatever happens, we'll be tracking here on this program together, Lance. Thanks so much for giving so much time. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching.